Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Awesome. Well, if you haven't been with us, we're at the end of a four-week message series called The Bible for Grown-Ups. And, and literally, we're talking through this uh, four-week series about the story of this book I'm holding called The Bible. And um, this series is really for those people, and I know many of you in this room, many of you watching online, you were handed a Bible as a, as a, as a child, and maybe someone said, this is God's Word. This is a love letter to you. This is your guidebook for life. Every word is true. Do what it says. And that was great as a kid, and you maybe embraced that and believed it, but, but perhaps, uh, perhaps as you grew up, you didn't learn the rest of the story. And um, consequently, what happens for a lot of people is they're told this is God's word, but nobody ever tells them how they can be sure of it or, or the story of the Bible or how they can know that they can trust it. And so when they get older, maybe they read some things in the Bible and they go, ah, oh, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't like that. I don't understand that. Or maybe you go to college, university, and people start raising questions about the Bible and its historicity, and you're going, oh, oh. And so you become skeptical over time because you don't know the story of the Bible. Perhaps you're a person who's heard lots about the Bible but never given it a close look yourself. The series is for you. And of course, you can go back on our, on our online uh, stream on, on YouTube, on our, on our, face, or our website, and you can watch those previous messages. But today we're going to kind of wrap things up, and we're going to try to summarize for you the story of the Bible. Uh, again, many of us know Bible stories. We're going to go over here. Many of us know Bible stories, Okay. Uh, we heard about them, maybe you learned about them in Sunday school, maybe you read about them, but very, very few people, even people in church, know the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is like how this book came to be. And we've been saying this over the last few weeks, that this book actually contains 66 different documents written over a span of 1,600 years by 40 or more authors, and there are many different types of literature in this book. So there's, there's history, there's law, there's poetry, there's biography, there's personal letters. All of that is contained inside this book. And when you, when you know the story of the Bible and how this book came to be and how it came together, it enables you to read it and interpret it in the appropriate way. We've been saying this, that the story of the Bible sheds light on how we read, interpret, and apply what the Bible says. And so, you know this, you've seen people open the Bible and grab a verse from here and a verse from there, and you can get it to say anything you want. But when you know the story of the Bible, and you know the, the grand narrative, the story that weaves itself through the pages, you then begin to read and understand the Bible in a new way, and it comes to life for you. Now, the truth is, is that the way we got our Bibles, okay, is not the way we got the Bible. When I was a kid, like many of you, my parents handed me one of these, and I remember flipping it open, and there was like at the beginning there was a preface. It was like telling me all about the translation and all that stuff. And then I opened, and there was a table of contents. And all the documents in the Bible are neatly organized, okay? Interestingly enough, they're not organized chronologically. And if you're new to the Bible, you wouldn't know this. Like you would assume since these documents have been written over this huge span of time that they would have put them in the order of like when they were written so you could kind of follow the trajectory of the Scripture. But in fact, they group them by type. So you know, you go to a library and they have all the mechanical books here and they have all the fiction here and they have all the poetry over here. It, they did the same thing when they put all these documents in the Bible. They actually organized them by type. 
Okay, so they're out of chronological sequence at times. And so, again, understanding. I opened it up, I saw the table of contents. And then I flipped it open and each book is, is carefully organized and it has chapter and verse, right? So we can all go to the same place and read the same thing. Some of you might even have had a Bible when you, when you go to the New Testament where you, you see the words of Jesus in red. I remember the first time I saw one of those, I'm like, mine doesn't have that. How did yours get in red? And they were like, oh, these are the words of Jesus. And I thought, wow. So it didn't turn up that way. In fact, the Bible wasn't written in English. And we don't have time to get into how we got an English translation of the Bible, but there's a story behind that that would blow your mind as well. People died to get this out of Latin and get it into English so that you and I would be able to read it today. So there's a huge, huge story. But here's the thing we've been saying about it, that Jesus didn't write it, okay? So Jesus didn't come down from heaven, grab a feather pen, and write out the entire Bible and be like, this is my word for you. That's not the way it happened. Okay, he didn't write it, but he is the reason why we have it. And so if this is helpful or not, I'm not sure, but I want to show this to you in pictorial form, kind of summarize where we've been the last few weeks, okay? Um, the reason why we have a Bible is because of Jesus, and it's because of an event that took place in the first century. Anybody remember what that event was? The resurrection. Someone shouted that out. The resurrection is the reason, okay? In the first century, a man named Jesus turned up on the scene, Jewish rabbi, he had a, a, a group of followers. He did miracles. He said things like no one else ever said. People at the time believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God. They were following him, hopeful that he would set up this worldwide kingdom of peace and love. And, and they believed that Jesus was the guy to do it. And then all of a sudden, he's arrested, betrayed, uh, falsely accused, and he's nailed to a Roman cross, and he is now dead. Now, when that happened, Jesus' followers and friends were disheartened they were hopeless. They thought the story was over. They thought, we thought he was the guy, and now he's gone. Something happened on the third day. Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose, I got a little image here. This is where the Bible story starts for us as Christians. Jesus rose. I don't know if you can see it. There's a little empty tomb here. Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose, those same people who were scared and bewildered began to boldly profess a risen Savior Trusting in him is the way to God. And they began to share that message, even to the point of being arrested and killed. They were so, so, so convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And because he rose, they wrote accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the church began formed. Next slide, we've got a little church here. Okay, the church emerged because of the resurrection. And we're not talking about a church building. We're talking about a community of people that believed in and trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, the visible God revealed to man who paid the price for our sins. So this community of people emerges. But it doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It doesn't stay in the immediate context of Jewish people. It actually goes out to the whole world. And what happens is throughout the Roman Empire, this message of a resurrected Jesus, the Son of God, had come to earth to die for our sins. It went out and Greeks and Romans and people from other nationalities were embracing this and believing. They were throwing their gods and idols aside and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. And this is what's interesting. It's because you have people who are not Jews suddenly following a Jewish Messiah. We've got a little statement here. Gentiles began to follow a Jewish Messiah, they began to study the sacred text of the Jews. You have to understand this is significant. Romans are going down to the synagogue and asking to read Jewish scripture. That's weird. And, and these people who are not Jews are reading the sacred text of the Jews. Next image. Okay, so here's what happens. 
the message goes out to the world, and the world starts to read these ancient documents that the Jews have treasured for centuries. They had already compiled 39 documents into a, a giant scroll. And they had their kind of what we call the Old Testament. It was like their Jewish scriptures. It was all compiled. And, and so now you have people that are not Jewish reading it and studying it. And then they start studying the history of the nation of Israel. Okay? They start reading about the kings and the judges and how God was working his plan through the nation. But, but interestingly enough, they weren't embracing these scriptures in Jewish history. They weren't embracing it as Jewish scripture. Next slide. They were actually embracing it as Christian scripture. They were looking at the history of the nation of Israel and all the law and the prophets, and they were going, where's Jesus in this? Because what they believed was that, next slide, uh, they believed that, that all of this pointed to this. Jesus himself said, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me. The law and the prophets point to me. They're about me. And so now, because of the resurrection, you have people who are not Jews reading Jewish scripture, embracing it as Christian scripture, and seeing how it points to a risen Savior. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the first century. A few accounts of Jesus' life have been written. The apostles are spreading the message. Christians are surfacing. What we now call Christians are surfacing throughout the Roman Empire and trusting in Jesus. That's where we are. And from the very beginning of the Christian movement, people who followed Jesus began reading and studying the sacred scriptures of the Jews. That is why what we call the Old Testament, those Jewish scriptures, are included in our Bible. Because from the beginning, Jesus and the apostles quoted them. The early church studied them. And they are a wealth of information, knowledge, and they point to Jesus. So that was all included. So that's where we get the Old Testament and why we have the Old Testament in our Bible. That brings us really um, to about four or five years after Jesus' resurrection. There's a man that surfaces, and I want to talk about him today. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is a man who is a Jew. He's a religious leader. He studies the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures. He was an expert in them. And when he heard about this movement of people that claimed that the Jewish Messiah had come, the Jews had killed him, and he rose again, he was like, no. He was, like many people today, a skeptic. He was a skeptic of the Christian message. He was a skeptic of Jesus. And he wasn't one of those people. You know there are people that uh, when they see something they don't agree with, they just complain about it. And then there's people that see something they don't like and they just turn away from it. Paul was a man of action. Saul was a man of action. He decided he was going to, he was going to do something about it. So he got letters from the Roman authorities, letters from the Jewish authorities, and started to travel around Israel going town to town searching out for anybody who was a follower of Jesus. And you know what he did with them? He arrested them, he had them beaten, and sometimes they were even killed. This is a man who was so convinced that this Jesus thing was a lie He was so convinced that this Jesus thing was a twist on the Jewish scriptures, he wanted to shut it down. And of course, some of you will know the story. But Saul is on his way to a town called Damascus, and on his way there, he's going to arrest Christians, and on the way, he sees Jesus. A bright light shines. He's blinded. He falls to the ground, and Jesus speaks to him in a personal way. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a moment that takes place where everything that Saul thought he knew and believed did a 180-degree turn. This is the road to Damascus experience we talk about. But here's a man who is trying to shut down Christianity, who now becomes perhaps its leading contributor. And he goes on to become called the Apostle Paul. His name is changed, the Apostle Paul. And of course, many of you know who the Apostle Paul is. 
It's interesting about this is, you know, um, not too many people are argued into the faith. You know, like if you and I were to sit down and we were to have a conversation, we were to say, oh, I, I don't think the Bible's true for these reasons, that I give you all of the facts and information, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. But I'm telling you, God does something personal inside the heart of every person. And I'm guessing that those of you in the room, those of you watching online, um, as you're sitting here today, there's probably a moment in your mind when you can go back in time and you go, God spoke to me, Jesus revealed himself to me, it, maybe it wasn't a bright light, but something happened where a personal God called to me and I responded. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I see a few heads nodding. You're like, yeah, yeah, there's an experience. So it's not, it's not an all up here, but it's like, man, I've, I've experienced Jesus and transformation of the heart results because of it. So I want to talk to you today about three reasons why Paul is so important, okay? So Paul's important for three reasons. There's probably more, but these are three big ones, okay? Number one, he's important because he wrote some of it. There's 27 documents in the New Testament, and basically the Bible's divided into Old and New Testament, about two-thirds and one-third, all right? Um, basically, the Old Testament was all written before Jesus came, contains the history of the Jews, their law, all of those things, God revealing himself. The New Testament over here uh, actually contains uh, accounts of Jesus' life and letters that were written by the apostles. And um, how many of you, this is just a fun, how many of you when you were kids did something called sword drills? Okay, I guess see some hands going up. Uh, sword drills are awesome. Like when I was a kid, uh, this is what we did for Sunday school because we didn't have cool videos, right? And uh, they had the flannel graph, but that got tiring and the, the little guys kept falling off. And so I remember we would all have our little Bibles and the teacher would say, swords up! And we'd hold them up like this. You couldn't hold it this way because, you know, there was always that sneaky kid that his finger right in the middle in Psalms so he could reference where he was going. And, and essentially what would happen is it would hold this up and the teacher would say a Bible verse and everyone would try to find it as quick as they could and the first person to stand and read it. It was the best part of Sunday school. It was interactive. I thought of doing it today, but I'm not sure how many of you have your Bibles. Like, swords up, let's see how you do. Um, it would be really fun to see. Probably the kids would win. Um, my wife and I were testing this this morning. And see, I used to do this thing. This is what I used to do in Bible college when I got bored. I would sit and look at the Bible, and then you just pick a book of the Bible and just stick my finger and open it up. I'm pretty good at it, too. I tried it this morning, and, and I was like, she's like, Jeremiah. I'm like, boom, there it is. Luke, boom, there it is. She's like, Philemon, which is a one-page letter at the back of the Bible. I opened it up to the concordance, and I failed. It was awesome. <laughs> But Paul wrote, Paul wrote, of the 27 books, he wrote 13 or more. So half of the documents in the New Testament were written by Paul. He's a significant contributor to this book and to the story uh, of this book. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that when you read the different documents in the Bible, you discover that it doesn't appear like any of the people who wrote these things down, they didn't know they were writing the Bible, if you know what I'm saying. So Paul's sitting in his jail cell and he's writing letters to teach the church, to encourage churches. He's sending these letters off. I don't think he thought, oh, I'm writing these documents that are going to be bound in a book with leather and gold and, and sent around the world. And it's going to, like, he was, he was writing with a purpose, but he didn't know necessarily that he was writing the Bible. And so someone who's skeptical could say, well, <laughs> the why, how do we know it's actually God's word if it was just a letter that was written? Well, interestingly enough, Peter, one of the main disciples of Jesus, actually writes this about Paul. He says, in one of his letters, he says, there are some things in them, Paul's letters is the context, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we have Peter, one of the leading apostles, saying, you know, I know Paul's really smart and some of the things he says can be confusing, but he is teaching true doctrine and people are twisting it just like they twist all the other scriptures. So even in the first century, the other apostles were like, that is God's word, that is important, that is pure doctrine. And so we can trust what Paul says. So, number one, he wrote some of it. Number two, you ready for this? Number two, he explains the relationship between the parts of it. He explains the relationship between the parts of it. Paul does more than perhaps any other author in the New Testament to to really explain how we can read the Old Testament and the story of Abraham and the law and the prophets and the king and how all of it weaves together with the story of Jesus. He does so much of this in, in his letter to the Roman church where he kind of follows and flows through history and explains to us how we're to read and understand it. Uh, basically, what Paul teaches could be summarized like this. Now, I know this is a really simplistic statement, but it, w- it would say, read the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation, but not application. Now, I think that's true. However, I would say there's so much more in the Old Testament than that. There's wisdom. There's Christ revealed. There's prophecies about Christ. There's, there's uh, imagery and symbolism that all point to the gospel. So that it's, it's full. It's a treasure trove. But we don't read the Old Testament for application. The Old Testament is not our guidebook for life, okay? It's not where we go to go, okay, what are our marching orders? Uh, Let me give you an example. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, now before faith came, faith in Jesus came, we were held captive under the law. He's speaking about the law of Moses, given to the nation of Israel in a covenant. He says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Next passage. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What he's saying is, The law of Moses was given to protect us, to teach us about sin, to keep us out of trouble until Christ would be revealed. And then we'd no longer be under that law, but we'd come under a new law. Next passage. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul is very clear. We're not going to the the book of Moses. We're not going to the law given at Sinai and going, these are our marching orders. We have new marching orders. And so Paul would say this. He would say, take your application cues... So how we live, what we do, from Jesus' new covenant command, which, by the way, is to love others, to love one another as he has loved us. That is the New Testament command. He goes on to write this in Romans 13. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That those laws and ordinances given by God to the nation were intended to help them figure out how to love and treat one another properly. But when we have Christ and when faith comes, then we live out the law. He also says this in Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. By the way, we don't get to define love as Christians. Right? It's like, oh, I love her. I love him. <laughs> it's, it's not... It's not feelings-based. It's not like here's how love is defined. God defined love for us. In Ephesians, a couple chapters later, Paul writes these words. He says, listen, husbands, love your wives. Not how you think you should love her, but love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus demonstrated what love looks like. Jesus demonstrated what this command looks like. And he invites those who follow him to enter in and live in that way. So Paul goes to the Old Testament, points it to Jesus, and says, now live out this new command in this way. So uh, as far as Paul goes, he wrote some of it. We said that. 
Uh, secondly, he explains the relationship between the parts of it. And thirdly, he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. This is important. He authenticates the most important event. What's the most important event? Resurrection. A few people got it. The resurrection is the most important event. It's the reason why we have the Bible in the first place. Okay? He, he authenticates this event. Remember, no resurrection, no resurrection, no Bible. And someone might say, well, the, the Jewish scriptures were all written before Jesus, so they would exist. But here's the thing. Unless you're Jewish, an Orthodox Jew, you would never have read it. You wouldn't even know what's in it. The only reason why you know about it and you've read it is because of the resurrection. So because the resurrection happened, uh, it changed absolutely, changed absolutely everything. Some people would make the argument, and this is what, why Paul's statements are so important. Some people would make the argument that the resurrection of Jesus was added much later. So track with me. How many of you have heard how myths and legends start, right? It's a little kid out fishing with his dad, and he catches a fish, and it's this big. But when you're little, a fish this big feels like it's this big. And then, of course, you get older, and you start dating a girl, and you're telling her about the fish you caught, and it's this big. And then you get with your boys at the dorm, and all of a sudden, you know, it's a shark. It's a, it's a 12-foot shark. You know, it's just how things kind of develop and evolve and legends grow. And some people would basically make the argument and say, look, you know, Jesus was a good guy, he was a teacher, maybe even a prophet, but then he died and someone stole his body and no one knew what happened. And so like 50, 60, 70 years later, people started to say, well, maybe he rose. And then of course, because we can't sort of nail down the dates when the gospel accounts were written about Jesus' life, it's like, well, you know, maybe 70 years later, they, they sort of added this whole resurrection thing into the story to, to you know, embellish it. You know, it's like it, it grew, the legend. It was like the real Jesus, and then there's like the myth and legend of a resurrected Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? That's the argument that people would make, and it's why Paul's letter to the first Corinthians is so important, right? Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. And what I want to do uh, is just take a few minutes to show you a timeline, and you may not be able to see it, but if you can throw the timeline up on the screen. Uh, on the left side here, we have 3 AD, okay? So somewhere between 0 and 3 AD, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the Christmas story we're going to celebrate in the next month. That all happens. Around 33 AD, Jesus' death and resurrection. You, you with me so far? If we go over here to 55 AD, this is when scholars best guess that Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, Okay? So 55 AD, he wrote the letter, but when he writes the letter, he refers to when he visited Corinth, which was three years earlier. You're tracking with me. So 52 AD is when Paul had said these words that we're about to read to the Corinthians. That's only 19 years after the resurrection of Jesus. That's not 80 years. It's not 100 years. 19 years approximately between Jesus' resurrection and and Paul teaching what we're about to read. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. So he's like, this is what I shared with you and you believed it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Paul says, here's the message I shared with you when I first came. Jesus died for your sins and he fulfilled the Jewish scriptures in doing so. Next thing he told them, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul's like, when I was there, I told you, Jesus didn't stay in the ground, his body wasn't stolen, he rose from the dead and fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. Again, which are now included in our Bible. 
and that he appeared to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. Remember Peter? Peter and Paul knew each other. Then he appeared to the twelve. So Jesus appears to, to Peter, and then he appeared to the twelve disciples. And then it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I want to stop here. Paul says Jesus didn't just appear to a few people. He actually appeared to 500 people at one time. And he says that many, most of those people are still alive. Well, this makes sense because it was only about 19 years since Jesus' resurrection. Let me remind you of an event that happened approximately 20 years ago. See if you remember it. 9-11. And if you're under 25, you probably don't remember. You know, because you weren't born or you were too young. But those who are older than that, I'm guessing you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news for the first time. You probably remember turning on the TV, what the TV looked like, what was going on as you saw images of horror on the screen. That was only 20 years ago. Isn't that crazy? 9-11, it's actually my anniversary as well. It was, it was my date first. I'm just throwing, our second anniversary was not a good one. Uh, we just sat there staring at the TV, you know. But the point is, is like, Paul, this is the scope that we're talking about. Paul's like, 19, 20 years ago, Jesus rose and appeared to all these people, and if you want to verify it, you can go and talk to them. I can take you to people that touched the nail prints in his hand, that spoke with Jesus after he rose from the dead. This is why the Christian church couldn't be stopped, because it wasn't a myth. It wasn't a legend. It could be verified, and it was. Here's the next thing he says. He continues, then he appeared to James. This probably is even a better evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. James is believed to be Jesus' younger brother, okay? Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph, but, but Joseph was not his biological father, right? We know that. But Joseph and Mary had other children, James being one of them. And here's the cool thing. James is not part of Jesus' team while he's doing his ministry. James surfaces as a leader in the church after the resurrection. And what, what, what Paul says is that Jesus actually appeared to his younger brother. Let me ask you a question. What would you have to do to convince your younger brother that you are the son of God? I think coming back from the dead might have helped. Jesus appears to his brother James. James becomes one of the leaders in the early church and then to all the apostles. And then what, what he's, really what he says uh, next through this text is, is this idea that Christ died for our sins. This is like, again, this is 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus and it was already a creed. It was already something that the Christian church was sharing with one another, that Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. This was the message of Christianity that spread throughout the Roman Empire. It could be verified, which is why it could not be stopped. Okay, is this making sense? And so Paul is so significant because he helps us to see, number one, that Christ died and was buried and he rose and was seen. Here's, here's the point I guess I'm trying to make. Okay, the Bible did not, next slide, the Bible did not create Christianity. Okay, the Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity is the result of an event, the resurrection, that created a movement, the church, that produced texts, gospels, letters, and the Old Testament that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. And again, uh, one of the questions I answered a few weeks ago in a little video I shot online was people would say, well, how did, we, how did they choose which documents went inside? And, and that would be a whole other message series. But let me just simply say this. There were a number of criteria Within the early church, 
within the first century, they were already collecting and talking about which documents were valid. So there was already a growing list in the first hundred years, which continued to grow until the fourth century when all of it was compiled into one large volume. And some of the criteria they used for which documents made it into the New Testament were, number one, had to be written in the first century by an apostle or church leader. There were people who wrote gospel accounts about Jesus' life in the second century, but they weren't there to to witness it. And they had all kinds of weird stuff in it, so they threw it out. There were all kinds of other letters with weird doctrine. They threw those out because they wanted to have, make sure they were written in the first century by apostles and leaders. They had to agree with the Old Testament. They had to fulfill the Old Testament and agree with the apostles' doctrine. They had to be uh, carefully preserved and loved by the early church. So, so they had all these criteria through which, and they bound them all into a book that we now call the Bible. And it is God's word to us. And I like to think about it this way, and this is where I'll close. It's like a safe. Something isn't valuable because you put it, you can throw an old receipt in a safe, it doesn't make it valuable, right? But you put stuff in a safe because it's valuable. And the Bible represents the most sacred and beloved texts of the Jews and of the early church that were thoroughly vetted, that were thoroughly read, that were preserved. People died to protect these documents that would eventually end up in this vault that we call the Bible. And when you understand the story of the Bible, and we could continue into the 15th and 16th century of how it got translated into English and all of that, there's so much more to talk about, but I want you to understand, if we knew what went into creating this document for us, it blows our mind. And our love for it, our appreciation for it, our trust in it actually grows the more we learn. And so I hope that this series has been helpful for you, no matter where you are with your journey with the Bible, your journey with faith. This whole thing is about Jesus. This whole thing is about the resurrection. I could summarize it to say this. The story of the Bible reminds us that the most important question is not are we at peace with everything in the Bible, but rather have we found peace with the God who loved the world so much that he gave his son for it. And that's where I want to end today. And so if you would join me, let's, let's pray, and then the band is going to come up and lead us in a closing song. Father, thank you for each person tuning in online, each person in the room who've been participating throughout this series. And I know, Lord, that I've only scratched the surface of some of the history and some of the connections that are found throughout this amazing book called the Bible. Thank you that you um, gave us your word so that we could learn about you and learn about your son and learn about the gospel. Thank you that you rose from the dead, that you were seen, and that those who have faith in you and trust in you can be saved. Lord, today, as we close out this series, help us to be those people who love your word, who open it up and read it and study it because of the richness of what you have written to us. God, thank you uh, for every person listening, and thank you for this series, and thank you for our stretch campaign, all that we've seen you do through the faithfulness of your people, and all of it began with the resurrection. So, Father, we thank you, and uh, we give you the rest of this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.